Good morning to all. Uh, for the benefit of guests, my name is Joe Miller, and I serve as the congregation's pastor here at New Hope Community Church. Um, and before we go any further, uh, as Shannon already um, said beautifully, uh, I'd like to spend uh, some time praying uh, for the, um, this violence, this war in Ukraine. Um, our time here in worship, it's not a time for politics, it's not a time for commentary, but it is a time for prayer. Um, and we're praying for people. We're praying for men, women, children affected by destruction. As we see these news reports, it is just devastating, and you see this, and it's just your heart wrenches. And many of these people are, at this moment, right now, fleeing their lives, fleeing for their lives and seeking shelter, hoping, hoping and trusting in some sort of hospitality from strangers. One of the clearest calls, um, I think, in Scripture is to uh, be hospitable, be hospitable, to, to welcome the stranger, um, to be there when another person is in need. And Christians throughout the centuries have done amazing things, um, staying behind when other people have left and opening their doors when people need uh, help, when people need food and, and a home. Um, may we always, may the church in this, uh, in this century, in, in 2022, follow that lead of the churches throughout the centuries and be hospitable, be hospitable to strangers. Uh, may the church at this moment and in, in all areas of the world uh, be Jesus' church, right? Ready to love sacrificially whom Jesus loves unconditionally. Let me say that again. Our call is to be Jesus' church, ready to love sacrificially those whom Jesus loves unconditionally. There was a prayer that was put out by the, um, the Methodist church this week that, that meant a lot to me, and so I'd like just to spend some time praying through this. Holy and gracious God, we pray for the people of Ukraine and for the people of Russia, for their countries and their leaders. We pray for all those who are afraid that your everlasting arms hold them in this time of great fear. We pray for all those who have the power over life and death, that they will choose for all people life and life in all its fullness. We boldly pray that today, today Lord. We pray for those who choose war, that they will remember that you direct your people to turn our swords into plowshares and seek shalom, seek peace. We pray for the leaders of this world, and, and specifically on the, on the world stage right now, that they would be inspired by the wisdom and courage of Christ, following in your path of sacrificial love. Above all, Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for shalom. We pray for peace in Ukraine, for that whole region of Europe. We ask this in the name of your blessed Son. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Well, here's the truth that we come to on this final Sunday before Lent. Jesus came to make dead people alive. 
Grab a Bible, turn to the book of John, and, and, and while you're turning there, let me just remind you of a, of a few stops we've made along the way. We've been in this series, God in Our Midst, which for the most part has been studying uh, the, through the book of John, uh, and we've been in it since Advent, since, um, uh, since, since Christmas. Um, if we have a look at chapter 2, we see Jesus going into a temple in Jerusalem, into the temple in Jerusalem, where the Jewish people, uh, that the Jewish people believed was the intersection of heaven and earth, and the authorities asked for a sign from Jesus. Uh, you know, what sign? Where, where do you get off, Jesus? Where do you, where do you, what, by what authority do you say all these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders are understandably perplexed, but John, he makes the special point of saying that, that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus then gives away the ending of the book, and by say, or John gives away the ending of the book by saying, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Like the whole, John was, was setting up right from the beginning um, the resurrection. He was setting up that, that, uh, that death doesn't have the final word. The next few chapters show several examples of Jesus referring to eternal life, um, the eternal life that he has come to offer to his people. We get examples of healing. Um, healing comes, um, I think, at least in five different categories, the kind of healing that Jesus came to bring. At least it's the healing categories of the mental, the emotional, the physical, the social, and the spiritual. Maybe throughout Lent, um, you, you might do a chart like on a piece of paper, you might like journal a bit and actually think about your faith in regards to those five categories and how you're praying for healing during Lent through the physical, the mental, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual. And then in John uh, 5, uh, we hear Jesus say this, John 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, uh, that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then in the next chapter, we see Jesus feed 5,000 people. He feeds the multitude. He walks on water, and then he proclaims himself the bread of life. Um, John 6, starting in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, and get this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ooh, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides. Well, that word abides is so important. Abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. 
So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, the manna in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. There was even a moment in in chapter 7 where Jesus is in public. He's He's in a public festival, and on the last day of this great feast, he stands up and he says in a really loud, clear voice, he just like, imagine like you're in a public place, and then Jesus stands up and yells something. If, if that happened and you were there, you'd be like, well, was he paid? Well, I, I want to hear what he says, right? He, Jesus stands up and he yells, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me for a drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John makes a point to say that this is a reference to God's Holy Spirit who will fill the people of God once Jesus is enthroned as the one true king. In chapter 10, in chapter 10 after Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, we hear him say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he says the exact same thing about the Father. And nothing, nothing will be able to snatch us out of the Father's hands. So we're reading, we're seeing John fill this story with various images and, and, and themes, signposts, if you will, that, that Jesus did that are all pointing to something. See, a miracle is different than a sign. A miracle is something that happens in the present, but a sign, the things that Jesus did, were all pointing to something else. And today, we're going to see something of what all those signs were actually pointing towards. Today, we're going to get a clear picture of what the big thing is that Jesus is doing. So turn to chapter 11, John chapter 11. There we see, um, John tells us that a man named Lazarus was ill. He was sick. Now, Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany actually means house of the poor. There's some evidence to suggest that this was actually like a, a collection. This was a, a community of, uh, of, of poor folks, of folks in poverty who were living together um, out of solidarity with each other. But um, this is about two, two miles east of Jerusalem. Um, with And Lazarus lived with or near his sisters Mary and Martha. John makes a special point in telling us that it was this Mary who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. Now, the interesting thing is, this woman gets down on the ground, pours perfume on Jesus' feet, and then starts wiping his feet with her hair. But that's kind of funny because that event, that John's making a mention of that event, but that event actually doesn't happen until chapter 12. It doesn't happen until the next chapter. So, so why is John bringing it up now? I think he's, it's telling that, that after she does this, Jesus makes this comment about how she has been preparing him for burial. So I think that there's something about this chapter and the next chapter that we're supposed to read together. John is turning up the volume on the role that death is going to play in the story of salvation. But at this point, Lazarus was just sick, or at least that's what they thought. So Mary and Martha sent for Jesus. They knew Jesus. It's quite possible that that this family were were actually some of Jesus' closest friends. 
They knew that he was the healer. So they sent for Jesus by simply saying, I mean, wouldn't it be great if somebody could send you a message and, and it just said, Lord, the, he whom you love is ill. Jesus receives this message and, and comments, this illness does not lead to death. It is actually for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, spoiler alert. Lazarus does indeed die. In fact, he was probably already dead. So why did Jesus say this illness doesn't lead to death? Well, here's the thing. And this is actually a big, a big principle of something that John has been doing since the beginning, uh, a big theme that John is trying to get us to see in throughout this story, that, that a big thing that John is trying to get us to believe, the, that we are to believe via the story that death still may be a part of the story, but it does not have the last word. I mean, I wonder if anybody here, anybody listening needs to hear that. Maybe, maybe you've lost someone close to you. Maybe as you grow older, you are increasingly aware of your own mortality. Maybe you just so see all of the senseless violence and death all around us, around our world and here in our own backyard in Baltimore, and something deep inside of you just says, that's not right. John is telling us a story in order that we might believe that death does not have the final word. We may go through the valley of the shadow of death, but we don't stay there. Any, another particular detail, in verse 5, John chooses this moment to tell us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. So he found the nearest horse, and he, and he hopped on, and he rode throughout the night so that he could be there for his friend, right? No. No, he loved them. So verse 6, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two days. This is a not-so-subtle way of Jesus saying that God's timing is not our own. His friend was sick, but it looks like Jesus was, you know, stopping for juji fruits. John makes a special point in telling us that it was actually because he loved them. It was because he loved them that he waited. I think it's clear that he spent those two days in prayer, aligning his actions with the Father's will, as we already heard this morning. Um, evidently, there was purpose in their pain. Well, that's not something we want to hear, right? That there's purpose in our pain. And if you think Jesus didn't feel it, I'll just wait a few verses. After waiting the two days, Jesus announces to the disciples that he's ready to go. But then the disciples push back. Maybe they thought that the reason that Jesus was waiting was to like, save their skin, you know? They say, Rabbi, um, um, the, the, you know, just remember what happened just a, a little bit ago. The, the Jewish authorities, they're, they're, they're actually looking to stone you. So maybe we don't go like marching in doing like, a, like you know, save your stuff. You don't want to go back there, do you? And Jesus replied, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Walking around in the daylight is the way to go because he sees things as they are. We see things as they are. It's walking about at night that's the problem. It's kind of a strange thing to say. What was all that about? Um, the, the writer N.T. Wright says that Jesus seems to have meant that the only way to know where you are going is to follow him. The only way to know 
uh, where you are going, how to see in the light is to follow the one who is the light. If you try to steer your course by your own understanding, you'll trip up because you'll be in the dark. But if you stick close to him and see the situation from his point of view rather than your own, then even if it means um, years of puzzlement, wondering why nothing seems to be happening, that pain will be real, but there'll be purpose in it. You'll come out at the right place in the end. Jesus told everyone, he said, you know, guys, our friend Lazarus is sick, has fallen asleep, and, and I want to go wake him up. We're, we're about to see in vivid detail the truth that following Jesus is the only path that doesn't lead to death, at least the final death. We may need to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but when Jesus is your guide, the story doesn't end there. Jesus told them that Lazarus had fallen asleep, but Jesus knew at this point he was dead. So Jesus says to the gang, Lazarus has died. But here's the thing, verse 15. For your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. So that, gosh, glad I wasn't there? What does that mean? So that you, and I think the you there is directed to the disciples and also us, so that you, so that we may believe. Remember, this whole book is written so that we would believe in Jesus. Let's get going, Jesus says. Thomas adds this comment. He says, all right, let's go. I guess we'll die with him. And maybe that was a cynical comment on Thomas's part. Maybe it was courage. Either way, it was the right response. Following Jesus requires that we take up our cross and follow him. There is no resurrection without death. There is no empty tomb without the cross. Jesus spoke about his burden being easy and his burden being uh, light, his yoke being light, yoke being easy, his burden being light. That didn't mean that, the, that, there, and that in this life there wouldn't be risk. That didn't mean that in this life there wouldn't be pain. It meant that we would be unburdened by the fear that consumes us over sin and death and evil, that we wouldn't carry sin, death, and evil around as baggage. No, we would be free free and unburdened in order that we might go out into this world and live a sacrificial life for God and for his people. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days, which means if, if you do the math, when, when Jesus said, you know, the illness does not lead to death, Lazarus was already died, already dead. But now Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and, and Mary and Martha, were, they were sitting shiva, right? They were mourning the loss of their beloved brother. Somehow Martha gets word that Jesus is nearby, so she jumps up and goes out to meet him. Mary, however, either out of patience for God's timing or loyalty to Jewish tradition or bitterness that Jesus hadn't come sooner, sooner she, she stays seated in the house. But Martha runs out. She runs up to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. One commentator said that the, the, the Jews believed that, that after death, the spirit roamed around the corpse for three days. So now that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, no one could bring the spirit back to the body except for God himself. Still, Martha's response, it feels, feels a little reactive. 
It's accusatory at first and, and then kind of feels like Martha is making her request from a place of pain rather than trust. She's seeing it from her point of view rather than from Jesus' Lord. If you were only there, Lord, if, if only you cared, Jesus. Jesus, if you only prioritized my pain, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, if you only prioritized my pain, the cancer wouldn't have come back. My wife wouldn't have left me. My kids would still talk to me. If, Lord, if you only cared, the killing would stop. Lord, if only. Jesus keeps his composure. Your brother will rise again, Jesus says to Martha. And Martha kind of thinks he's just giving her a line. Yes, Lord. Yes, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. No, no Martha, uh, you, you don't understand Verse 25, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This hope that you're waiting for, it, it is now. It is not then, it is now. And, and then again, Jesus emphasizes faith. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, he sh yet he shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? You see, Jesus is acknowledging common sense. The mortality rate of the human race is still hovering around 100%. But a belief and trust in the one who is the resurrection and the life is our connection to eternity. Jesus asked Martha if she believes, and I love her response. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's as if she's saying, yes, Lord, I, I may not understand. I don't really have all the details worked out of exactly how eternal life works, but I trust you. I, I don't really know all that I need, that need to know about you know, how heaven and hell works, Lord, but, 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 but I trust you. Let, let's begin there. I trust that you, Lord, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God coming into our world to offer salvation on your terms, not mine. So then Martha goes to get her sister. Jesus is here. He's asking for you. Mary may have been hesitant before, but now she jumps up and she goes and runs to Jesus and everyone else in the house figured she ran out of the house to go cry at Lazarus' tomb. So, so they follow her. So now there's a crowd watching as Mary runs up to Jesus and they see why then, and then they see why Mary left the house. She runs over and she falls at the feet of Jesus and emotions are raging all over the place. The guests are now outside. Everyone is looking at this scene of Mary crying at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and then he saw everyone else there with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When, when he saw Mary weeping, he not only saw Mary weeping, he saw the crowd of people. We, 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 so here we have Mary crying at his feet, and if that wasn't enough, Jesus then sees the community right? He sees the family, her extended family, her people, her, her tribe gathered around her to help her mourn. He was troubled. And, and that's what it took to move Jesus deeply. But, but we're also told that, that he was greatly troubled. He was troubled at the, at the, at the problem that he saw here, the problem of death. Death was not a problem to be tucked away and forgotten about. The defeat of death was the purpose for which Jesus came. 
So then he asked them to show them where they laid his friend Lazarus. And then this community, this crowd of people, they point and they show him where Lazarus has been laid. And at that point, we get the shortest verse in the Bible. Chapter and verse, verse numbers, you know, they didn't come into the medieval age. But, but this particular verse is, is powerful in its brevity. Verse 35, in the midst of all of this situation, Jesus simply, John simply tells us that Jesus wept. Now, you might know the story, and you might have figured it out by now, but Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So if that's the case, why is he crying? Why is he weeping? I think that he is weeping because death is something to lament It is quite possible to hold on to hope in one hand while still using your other hand to wipe tears from your eyes. There is nothing weak. There is nothing unfaithful about lament. This is why funerals are so important to the Christian faith. Death is something to be lamented. Death is something to be mourned. In many ways, the season of Lent that we're about to enter into is a season of intentional lament. It's an intentionally dark season of the year that we look inward at the sin, death, and evil that corrupts and infects this world that God loves so much. This sort of focus is not defeatist. It is honest. And when we lament the ills of this world, when we cry out to God and say, that's not right, Lord, we are only following Jesus' lead. Jesus wept. And we follow him. We follow Jesus' lead. So some in the crowd saw this uh, emphasizing Jesus, saw this as emphasizing Jesus' love for Lazarus. You know, oh, see how he loved him. You know, he's crying, see how he loved him. Others wondered how Jesus could heal a blind man, but not keep Lazarus from dying. Oh, he could do that, but he couldn't, couldn't heal his friend. Like I said, so emotions are raging, right? But Jesus is about to show that he is a man of action when the time is right. Moved with emotion, Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, Request that the stone might be moved away, which is probably a big deal. Martha comments, um, Lord, uh, by this time uh, there will be an odor. Uh, he's been dead for four days. But you've got to appreciate the King James on this. Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He hath been dead four days. Jesus looks back to her and says, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Which, in a contemporary biblical translation, might be rendered, hold my beer. So they take away the stone, and Jesus offers up this prayer, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And John kind of gives us this, like, this commentary on the prayer in the prayer. Father, I thank, that you have heard, thank you that you have heard me. I, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Like, Jesus is saying, Father, I know you and I are good. We have a mutual indwelling that we've been seeing. Um, but but I, I want you to know that I thank you, that, that I praise you because I want other people to hear it. That they might believe that you sent me. 
This was always about helping people believe. But now they, they aren't going to believe their eyes, right? Jesus praised this prayer and were reminded, we are reminded of the beginning of John's gospel when we read that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the, and the Logos was with God and the Word was God, which of course reminds us of, in the beginning, it reminds us of Genesis 1. When we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, God spoke, and creation happened. God spoke creation into existence, and now the Son of God, the embodiment of holiness and light and life itself, Jesus Christ cries out in a loud voice to his friend, Lazarus, come out. And out of this dark tomb walks this man who everybody knew had died. He didn't look dead. He was dead. His hands and his feet were still bound with burial cloth. His face was still wrapped. He probably didn't know what the heck was going on. And Jesus says, unbind him. Let him, let him go. This man who was once dead is now alive. <laughs> and that is actually, as we're going to find out, is the thing that's offered to all of us as well. This was the final sign that Jesus performed. There, there's some discussion about numbering of the signs. John specifically numbered the first and the second sign. Um, and, and there's also a question about whether we should lump episodes together. So, you know, we, we can all discuss that during our Bible studies. But, but, but John started his story by drawing our attention to the creation of the world in Genesis. He, he then spent much of the first half of his story drawing our attention to this Jesus who was the Word made flesh, God in our midst, who dwelled in our midst. Jesus turned water into wine. He healed the official's son. He healed an invalid. He fed the multitude. He walked on water. He helped a man born blind to see again. And now the seventh sign is when he, he sees Lazarus. When, when, the Saul, when Lazarus, who was resting on the seventh day, who was resting in the tomb before being raised again. Seven signs for seven days of creation. And now we enter the season of Lent, a season in which we prepare our hearts for the resurrection, the first sign of a whole new creation. The story that John is telling is written that we would believe that death doesn't have the final word. No matter how much sin and evil consume our world, they do not have the final word because Jesus Christ, Israel's representative Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, went to the cross to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So some, some simple questions then, right? Have you accepted that free gift? And if you have, are you living like it? It's our tradition. We're going to take communion in a, in a few minutes. It's our tradition at New Hope not to celebrate communion during Lent because it is something that we wait. It's a practice. It's a rhythm of our church calendar that, that we wait in eager anticipation for Good Friday to focus on the cross. 
And, and with any pastoral credit I have, I beg you, take this season to examine your faith. Think about what I, what I said about, the, about journaling those five categories, the, the physical, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, um, the mental. How, how are you doing with each of those categories? Where do you see God working in your life in each one of those categories? Examine your life. Examine your relationship with God. Ask yourself, have I been living as if sin and death and evil have the last word in my life? Or, or am I living today like I'm never going to stop living? Our communion table at New Hope is open that all, to all who call upon uh, Jesus is Lord, and you know if you're not there, if you're struggling with faith and doubt, um, what you need to hear is that you are most welcome here. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you. We are so glad you're here. We want to honor your journey. We're so glad that you're spending time with us here. Um, it's also important for me to mention that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, the other being baptism. He says this in the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew. Um, so if you take communion today, if you find yourself taking communion today and you haven't been baptized, that's okay. But I would ask that you come to me. Take the Lenten season to think about, pray about coming to me to discuss the proclaiming your faith in public via baptism. And with that, um, I would ask the congregation to please stand. Uh, as the church throughout the centuries have done uh, as we join together and read the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And have a seat and... Spend some time in inward reflection as the worship team plays a, plays a tune. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All 
my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God All my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. In darkest night, you are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God I will sing of the, the goodness, goodness of God. God. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing. Of the goodness of God, I will sing of the goodness of God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus had supper with his disciples. Um, and as Henry mentioned, we are going to spend uh, Lent going through the upper room discourse, which is the, the discourse Jesus is teaching that, that Jesus gave to his disciples during this meal. So that, that entire section could actually, be, uh, could actually be thought of as a reflection on what does it mean to live out this meal? 
What does it mean to live out the Eucharist? But at the meal, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, guys, take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus.